So we're in the book of Jonah tonight. The book of Jonah, the word, his name Jonah means dove. And you see him also mentioned in 2 Kings 14.25. And basically you also, Jesus mentions him in Matthew 12.40, where he says that, this, you know, as the prophet Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And we're going to go into that a little bit. Jonah came out of Galilee. If you remember the book of John 7.52, the Pharisees chastised and said, well, what prophet has ever come out of Galilee? Well, Jonah did. They didn't do their homework. It's actually kind of surprising that they would say that, being that they knew so much of the Old Testament. But, you know, when your heart is hardened and you're in sin, sometimes you, it, well, not sometimes, but it does blind you. So they were definitely blinded to that. And Jonah was sent to preach to the Ninevites. The Ninevites, or Nineveh, was the capital of the nation Assyria, okay, which was their, Israel's neighbor to the east and north, which is also, if you look at your globe today, your map, is uh, modern-day Iraq. So there's a lot of actually very historical sites in Iraq. Okay, so we're going to dig in. We're going to start with chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So what you see right away is God has a specific calling for Jonah's life. And did you know that God has a specific calling for your life and for my life? I got a little surprised a few days ago. Okay, So this is my calling. Uh, so we have a situation where he has a calling on all of our lives. Are you aware of this? Do you know what your calling is? And if you do know what your calling is, are you happy about it? Do you have a peace about it? You hear that expression used a lot. People, unfortunately, sometimes jump to the gun. If you ask them something about, you know, would you like to do something? You know, this is what we're doing. Uh, and they say, well, I don't have a peace about it. Right away, they jump to that conclusion. Well, have you prayed about it? Remember, peace is a fruit of the Spirit. It's supernatural. It's God gives you peace throughout the storms. But in Jonah's situation, he didn't pray about it. What did he do? As soon as God told him, he says, but he arose and fled, not east, but he went west. He's like, I'm getting out of here. I'm going as far away as I can. Verse 3, Tarshish is understood as Spain, going towards Spain. There's actually a place called Tartessus, Spain. So he goes, he goes west to a city of Joppa, which is a port city on the Mediterranean. So he could take a ship and continue to go further west. He's trying to go as far away as he can go from, from Nineveh. So he runs from God. Do we ever see a point in our life where we run from God? Can we ever assimilate or associate with Jonah? You know, does, has God ever asked you to do something that you just don't want to do? That you kind of you act like that stubborn mule, where the, you know it's pulling, they're pulling at the, at the headgear and the mule digs his feet and he's not moving. You've heard of stubborn mule. Well, we can be a lot like that. I think of I really can associate with this book. I was grappling with a lot of personal feelings as I was going through this book, and I think of myself. I know that God has always wanted me to be here, and every time He tried to make it clear to me to 
get more involved. I had all the excuses in the world. My wife makes fun of me. But I can't. But I can't. I have a job. I had all these excuses for why I couldn't do it. But you know what? I stopped running from the Lord. And you know what? I feel at peace. It really makes me calm. I really do have that peace right now. There's a lot ahead of us. But if you trust the Lord and what he asks you to do, he will give you that peace. So you have a situation where basically it's, it's really dying to yourself if you think about it. When the Lord asks you, are you willing for me to rise up to the next level? Are you willing to come with me? Are you willing to go where I ask you to go? It's basically a situation of, are you ready to die to yourself? Are you ready all that free time that you had? Are you ready to dig into some of that and use it for my will and my plans? Are you ready to do that? Is what God is asking us. Jesus said in John 12:24, unless a grain of wheat falls and dies, it is still alone. But if it dies, if it does die, it produces much fruit. So that, that grain of wheat, that kernel of wheat actually has to fall and die before it could be germinated and produce fruit. Jesus always used the very simple things to explain things in our lives. So, are we willing to die to ourselves? Are you running from God? Is anybody here running from God? Only you know the answer to that. Because we can make all the excuses in the world for why we're not doing something. But only you know in your heart if you're really running from God. So, I see a picture of Jonah, and he's, uh, he has good reason not to like these people. A little historic about the Assyrians was... You know, what they would do is when they would come into a place that they were conquering, there was no Geneva Convention. They didn't follow the rules. They didn't use, you know, ball bullets so it didn't tear you up. They didn't have rules of prisoners. What they did was they would come in and they would humiliate the people. They would strip them naked. They would cut off body parts. They would chain them together. And they would make examples to, to say, don't defy us. As a matter of fact, in some museums, there's... um. They call them Assyrian relief records. And for you military buffs, it's pretty interesting. They actually would make a tower of clay. And before it baked in the sun, they would actually carve out scenes from their battle. And in some of these Assyrian relief records, they have uh, scenes of themselves torturing children, blinding warriors from the other side that they've captured, cutting off limbs, impaling people, and beheading them. And they would make these towers like they were real proud of this. This was something that they you know, thought was a pretty good thing at the time. But they've lasted thousands of years, and we have these in museums. So there's a reason why Jonah doesn't like these people. He really has good reason not to like them. But that doesn't supersede God's calling. He had to trust the Lord in this one. So in Jonah's case, he puts nationalism, nationalistic pride, over obedience to God. Okay? Now... We have to ask ourselves, what do we put in our lives that we put over obedience to God? What is that important? Is it a relationship? Relationships can blind us. Is it notoriety? Is it excuses? Is it success? Everybody wants to be successful. Or is it just plain laziness? Sometimes we're just lazy. We don't want to do it. It's, it, it takes too much of our time. So what is it in our lives that we put above God and, and obedience to his calling? Verses 4 through 9. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, 
had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. The mariners were afraid in verse 5. That seems unusual. Now, if the scripture said, well, Joe Prosmo was afraid, that would make sense, because I hate the water, uh, and I get seasick very easily. So I would be throwing up and panicking the whole time. But the mariners, the mariners were afraid. Mariners made their living off of the sea. These guys handled storms before. What was the big deal about this storm? It must have been some heck of a storm that God put in that area at that time, right? And it was, it was really some incredible storm to get Jonah's attention. It was an incredible storm to get Jonah's attention. Can you think about your life? What are the storms that God has put in your life to get your attention, to wake you up? Some big storm. I, whenever people come to me and they um, ask for prayer or they ask for counsel regarding a, a, something that they're going through, I always say to them, don't waste the trial. Don't waste the trial. As you go through it, ask the Lord, what are you trying to show me through all this? What are you trying to show me through all this, Lord? Because most likely the Lord is trying to show something to you. And verse 7, the casting of the lots, that basically was like, when we think of flipping a coin or drawing straws or rolling the dice, that was kind of casting lots. They would put some stones or some gems or, or coins in a jug and they'd shake it up and they would, you know, release it. And whoever's lot came up, that was the answer. So God, of course, would use that. And in verse 9, he says this. <laughs> they asked him, and he says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Can you fear the Lord? And be disobedient? Well, obviously, yes, as we see in this case. Should we make it a practice? No, it's not very smart. At that point, you're testing God, and he can remove you and use somebody else. So I really believe that Jonah feared God in this story. Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. He was the author. He was very honest about his sins. Uh, you can see later, we'll, we'll, we'll see that he knew the word of God, and he knew God's character. So he did fear the Lord God, but he was disobedient. Verses 10 through 16. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring the ship to land, but they could not. For the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. 
So you have a situation here where he actually thinks, and he says to them, he actually thinks he could flee from God's presence. Isn't that amazing? What about some, Psalm 139? Just the two verses from it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Wherever we go, we can't flee from the presence of the Lord. There's no pocket in this creation that we can hide that the Lord knows doesn't know where we are. And for the Christian, that's a good thing. As If you look, read the book of Revelation, that's a bad thing for the unbeliever, for the ones who reject God. So in verse 12... He says, Jonah has a solution. He says, pick me up and throw me. Actually, the literal word is hurl me. Fling me really hard into the sea. Get me as far away from this boat as possible, and you'll be okay. And you know what you see there? You you see two solutions to the problem. The next verse, the men didn't really like that idea. They figured they're going to row harder and try to, you know, keep the, they kind of, maybe they like them by now. So keep them aboard. But you have two, two solutions to a problem. One, Jonah's solution. That showed, actually, his Christ-likeness. He wanted to give his life for the men on the boat. And the second verse was man's attempt. Man didn't like that idea. Nah, let's row harder. You know what? There's billions of people on this earth that are just rowing harder. They just keep rowing and rowing and rowing, and they're not getting anywhere. Isn't that interesting? But um, verse 14 says this. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased. So what's interesting is these pagan men stop praying to their false gods and they start praying to the Lord God. Can you remember somewhere in Scripture where somebody did that? Maybe Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4. Remember his prayer? He was so prideful and so lifted up that the Lord humbled him. And he ate, he was on all fours, and his nails grew, and he was eating grass like an ox. And he grew all his hair. And when his time of of humiliation was over, the Lord restored him, and he prayed to the Lord. You would almost think by reading that, the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life, that he got saved. It's It's not unusual for people in the Old Testament to get saved. We think that it's just, well, we go to witness to people. But God used the Jews back then to tell people about the one true God. Many people got saved through the Jewish people. So this is what these guys are doing. So do you think any of these mariners got saved through this incident? Do you think any of these mariners got saved through Jonah's disobedience? I think so. God can use us even in our disobedience. Do I think God wanted Josiah, or Josiah, I'm thinking of my son. Do I think that God wanted Jonah to go directly to Nineveh? Absolutely. Do I think that God knew that through Jonah's disobedience that he could save some of those mariners? Absolutely. Do you see here how we can have free will and God can be sovereign at the same time? People come on both sides of this equation. Well, there's the free will people. Well, we can do whatever we want. God has no control over us. And then you have the sovereign people. Well, even if our free will is free will, it's not free will because God told us to do it. We just don't know it. You have people taking stands on both sides, but do you see how God can be sovereign and we can have free will at the same time? Jonah was in disobedience, but God still used him. Isn't that amazing? So it kind of settles that discussion. Can you see that Crossfields will survive even though there was bad circumstances? Absolutely. God didn't start this for nothing. So 
do I think that it's good to be disobedient and that we should continue to do that so that some good thing will happen in the end? Absolutely not. What does Paul say? Romans 6, 1 through 2. Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? That's testing the Lord. If you keep thumbing your finger in the Lord's eye, he's going to be merciful. He's going to be merciful. Eventually, he's going to, he's going to have had it with you, and he's going to flip you over and tan your behind. My son does that. These are great lessons for me to, to understand because he's six years old. He's at the, the perfect age for that. He, he, I show him mercy, and I show him mercy, and eventually I have to correct him. And that's what God does with us. Eventually he has to correct us. So verse 16 says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and made exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Really read into this verse. Is this powerful or what? Three things happening. These men, these former pagans, feared the Lord exceedingly. They, it, that's repentance. These men got rid of their worthless idols because they did nothing for them on the ship. And they realized who really controlled the sea and the, and the boat and everything that was going on that day. It was repentance. They feared the Lord exceedingly. They got rid of all that stuff. And they, they focused on the, the real true God. They offered sacrifices. Now there's commitment involved. Now they're starting to make a commitment to, this, to the truth, to this God that they found that they've ignored their whole lives. Commitment. And then the last thing is they made vows. This is a picture of a changed life. Boy, these guys on one short boat trip make some Christians look bad, don't they? Put some of us to shame. These guys did a lot in that, in that trip that day. So, let's continue on. Verses 17 through 2, 9. Now the Lord God had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly and said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. And your billows, all your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The waters encompassed me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So you have this, um, he talks about three days and three nights. Now, that was a Hebrew idiom. Jesus used that also. The Hebrew idiom said you could say three days and three nights. The middle day was a full day, but you could only have you could you could say that and only use per, part of the first day and part of the third day. So that was an expression that they have. Just like if we have some of our expressions too, that if people came back from time, they would say, "What are you talking about?" Like people say, "That's the bomb." You're like, "There's a bomb?" No, that's actually a good thing. That means something good. But you'd frighten people who didn't understand what you were talking about. So you, you, have to, you have to understand the culture at the time. But the word great fish, and, that, and that's a good translation, great fish or sea monster. That's actually the literal translation of that word. Is it fantasy? 
you know, we, we, we think that this is like a kid's story and we teach it in, you know, the Sunday school class for the kids and they get excited about Jonah and the fish and they see the whale and all that stuff. But there's so many applications to our lives. But is it, is it literal or is it, you know, some people say that's ridiculous. How could that happen? Well, God could do a miracle. We know that. But it also could have been real. It also could have been literal. Uh, there was a biologist that got saved and he spoke about great sea creatures that could actually hold air in their bodies, and a man could literally survive there for three days. Um, one of them is the Balina whale. has air pockets. It breathes air. It comes to the sur- surface frequently. And also, it, they feed on, you know, a lot of these whales feed on krill or plankton, you know, very mild uh, digestive, you know, proteins. And their stomach acids don't, can't digest a man. A man could stay in there, and they would just get really bad indigestion and vomit him back up. Hence the story. There's also an ancient fish that's been recorded called the Pisces molaris, which is a very large fish that could very easily hold a man and enough air pockets for him to breathe. And even though it's not a fish, uh, if you were talking about sea creatures here, they've actually found species in modern times of 30-foot crocodiles that when they cut them open, they actually found uh, full human beings. Crocodiles, it takes them a while to digest their food. And they just take quick gulps, kind of like if you watch me. They take quick gulps and they shove it all in their stomach and it just takes a while to digest. So, uh, you know, these things could happen. Kind of reminds me of that guy. You ever see that guy, the crocodile hunter, that guy Steve, something or other? By crikey, look at the teeth on that old girl. This guy's crazy. Somebody's, he's going to end up in somebody's stomach one of these days. But anyway, it could have been a miracle because God does miracles and it could have been could have been literal. He could have just spoke to the fish and said, swallow him. He's right there. Go get him. And it could have happened. So let's look at Jonah's prayer for a minute. Does it sound like anything familiar to you? Really analyze that prayer. Maybe the Psalms. If you go through the book of Psalms, you see that this prayer can, is a compilation about, of about verses from about six or seven Psalms. So what does that tell you? Jonah didn't have a book in the fish's belly. He knew the word of God. He knew the word of God. And isn't it great how when we come to our senses as Christians, we always come back to the word of God, or we hopefully come back to the word of God if we come to our senses. But it's very important that when he prays, he speaks as almost as if, well, remember, he's praying in the fish's belly. He prays as if it's past tense, like he knows that God is going to deliver him. He knows he's going to be out of that fish. And he's, always, he's already praying as if it's past tense. That, to me, reminds me of a helpless prayer versus a confident prayer. How often do we pray, oh, Lord, the situation is helpless. I've tried everyone else. Now I'm at your door. Versus, you know what, Lord? I have a problem. It didn't go unnoticed by you. And I know you're going to take care of it, Lord. I have confidence in you. It's already a done deal, sealed and delivered. So it's a confident prayer versus a helpless prayer. And I see a lot of helpless prayers, but we need to be more confident in our prayer life. Not arrogant. We can boldly go before the throne of grace, but a confident prayer, knowing that our God can do anything and he will fix our situations. Okay, and verse 10, he speaks to the fish, and the fish vomits him or burps him or whatever he does. He puts him <laughs> some back on the shore. He gets rid of him. Imagine how, uh, imagine how he might look after that. Pretty slimy, pretty smelly. He talked about the weeds wrapped around his head and all. You know, he's pretty graphic in his prayer. Verses 5 through 10, chapter 3. 
I'm sorry, the deliverance of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach it to preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an excellent, exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. God is the God of second chances. He's very merciful to Jonah. Jonah's disobedient. He's uh, stubborn. But God gives him another chance. That's the God that we serve. He's the God of second chances. I can't tell you how many times in my life, even before I was a Christian, that I heard the word, and it, it sounded real good to me. It was something about a, a strong man of God who, who had preached to me that word, and I was just so captivated by God's word. But I guess the lifestyles I was leading kind of like choked it out. And this happened to me a few times, but eventually, ten years ago, nine and a half years ago, that was it. I heard it again, and I'm like, I can't run from this anymore. This is it. This is the answer. This is the truth. I keep trying my own way, and I keep, trying, I keep finding out that I'm not satisfied. This, that's not doing it for me. And how many times, even as Christians, that we've rejected his plan for us? We've just kept rejecting it and rejecting it, and the Lord keeps giving us another chance. And that should give us uh, great comfort, especially when we think and we agonize over unsaved loved ones and friends. God is the God of second chances. Verses 5 through 10. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth, from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, Taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let every one turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Sackcloth, ashes, and fasting, picture of repentance and mourning and then commitment towards God. Why did they respond so quickly? It's just, a, what did he say here that really did, did something to these people? Well, we know from Scripture that the Bible says that God draws men to himself. He was already starting to draw these people before he even called Jonah. The second thing is God certainly, I'm sure, prepared them. I have no doubt in my mind. History tells us that the 8th century B.C., the, these people suffered two plagues and a solar eclipse. And that certainly would have softened them up and prepared them to hear Jonah's words. And no doubt Jonah's appearance might have had a little bit of influence on that, dripping from whale spit. And, you know, probably, they probably were like, what, this is, what's going on here? This guy probably looked really like a prophet. But um, let's go to chapter 4 here. But it, deplete, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. 
Ironically, Jonah is upset because of God's character. He knew. It's like, you know, Lord, I knew this was going to happen. I knew that you were going to save these people. I knew that you were going to be merciful. You know, that's your problem, Lord. You're always doing the right thing, and it really burns me sometimes. Couldn't you do the wrong thing this one time and smoke these people? I mean, he's not happy. He is not happy. Why? Because of God's good character. I just want to die. Who's with this guy? Uh, verses 4 through 11. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, It is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and also much livestock? So Jonah pouts, and he takes his belongings, whatever he has, and he goes to the the border of the city and prepares a little shelter for himself. Probably in his heart, he's probably wondering, well, maybe they won't repent. Maybe this will only last a few days, and I'll get to see what I came here for. So he's on the outskirts of the city watching what's going on. And in the meantime, God prepares a plant to grow up and to eventually shelter him. And then he prepares a worm to go into that plant and kill it. And then he gets the the east wind and he gets the sun on his head and he's upset again. But this is an object lesson to Jonah, to prepare the plant and to take it out and then to explain to him. You know what, Jonah? That plant was very important to you because it gave you great pleasure and it shielded you. But as that plant was important to you, those people, 120,000 people that can't discern between their right hand and the left, which basically meant was they, they just didn't know. And he wanted them to know who he was. Those people that I made in my image provide me pleasure. The Lord was saying it would provide me pleasure to see those people saved and to be my children and not be separated from me for eternity. So this was an object lesson to Jonah. And those people are far more valuable than that plant that I put up. A few things about Jonah. Jonah is, is an unusual character in the Bible. He's disobedient. He's been called the reluctant prophet. He's angry, but God still uses him. He, how many times here do we even read that he, he says he wanted death for himself? He didn't get his way. He's like, ah, it's just better for me to die. <laughs> Maybe a little, I don't know, a little depression there. Something's going on in that guy. I don't know what it is. But he still used Jonah. Well, what about us? What about us? You know, I, I believe a lot of people are cheap in themselves. I believe a lot of us look at ourselves and say, why me? There's nothing special about myself. I really believe that a lot of Christians probably say that more than Christians who are arrogant. I really believe that. And I believe that if God can use Jonah, he can use any one of us, right? Here's a man that showed all the frailty of a man. I like the word in Hebrew, enosh. 
Enosh means mankind, but it also means frailty. Isn't that amazing how that one word can mean both? But isn't that so true? This, this man, the frailty of this man, God still used him in his weakness. And what does 2 Corinthians 12.9 say to us? He says, my grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. He was telling Paul, Paul's like, you know what, Lord? I know I would be doing this. I'd be like, all right, you call me to be a missionary. My feet hurt. I get migraines, Lord. You know what? I could really use a break here. And if I had a break, I could really do a great job for you. I'd do an even better job. It's like we kind of manipulate God a little bit. But God said to Paul, and I'm not saying Paul did that. I'm saying I would do that. But God said to Paul, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And, you know, my, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Because if we're strong, look at Gideon. When Gideon was strong, if, he, if Gideon was strong, God would say, you have to whittle those men down from 33,000. Because then it's going to look like you guys won the battle when I'm supposed to win the battle. He used Gideon, who was a guy who, who was threshing the wheat in the wine press. He was afraid. And the, and the angel of the Lord says, oh, mighty man of valor. Gideon's probably like, he's talking to me? What are you talking about? So God uses us when we're weak, not when we're strong. If we're filled up with ourselves, God can use us. So what I'm saying to all of us here is I'm saying to myself is we've got to stop running from God. If God calls us to do something, we have to look at ourselves and say, yeah, I'm really nothing special, but, but that's what the Bible's all about, God using people who are nothing special. So as the worship team comes up, I just want to ask any of you here, are you running from God? If you're a Christian, are you running from God? Stop running from God. Let him work in your life. Stop saying, I can't. Give him a chance to work through you. And if you're not a Christian, if you're here and you haven't given your heart to the Lord, what are you running from? He's God. You can't run from him. You saw from the story. If there's anybody here who hasn't accepted the Lord into their heart, I just would ask you that you would step out of your seat, make your way up to here, and I'll say a prayer. And if you repeat that prayer and mean it with your heart, God will hear that prayer and he'll answer that prayer.